Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. I'm your host, Brian Jewell, and I am feeling so honored that you decided to spend some of your time with us today. And of course, our promise to you is that we will do everything we can to make that investment of your time worth your while. Today, we're going to do that through a featured conversation with Christopher Elliott, who is a travel expert and consumer advocate who helps people solve all kinds of problems they have in their travel experiences through his syndicated columns, such as the Travel Troubleshooter and his advocacy work. It's a fascinating conversation. You won't want to miss that. Before we get into the interview with Chris, though, let's talk about some travel news you may have missed. Now, if you enjoy traveling in Europe, if you enjoy river cruising, you might be happy to know that there is a new river cruise company set to debut in Europe next year. Now, this company is called Riverside Luxury Cruises, and it will begin sailings on the Danube in spring of 2023. The company will begin its operations aboard the MS Mozart, which if you are a cruising aficionado, you may know that that's a ship that was originally designed for and operated by Crystal Cruises. The Mozart will accommodate between 100 and 150 guests in the new configuration that uh, Riverside is putting together. Now, the cruise line is being launched by a company that owns and operates 13 boutique hotel properties in Europe and the Maldives. Now, this organization says it's going to raise the bar on luxury cruising in Europe with uh, touches like fresh seasonal foods, a wine cellar on board, and even butler service. The company is now taking bookings, offering both fully inclusive and a la carte pricing, which is somewhat different than how some other river cruise companies in Europe operate. And they're also promoting some fam opportunities for travel professionals. So if you are a travel professional that sells cruising, if you're interested in maybe booking some cruises for your groups or combining some cruises with some land opportunities in Europe, I'd encourage you to visit them online at riverside-cruises.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Learn more about it and uh, expand the possibilities that you have to offer your clients and friends and customers who are interested in cruising in Europe. So now let's get into our road tip. Now, this is the segment of each show where we dip into our toolkit of travel experience and share some tips that you can use to help your next trip or your group's next trip be more fruitful, more convenient, more successful and less stressful. Now, if you are traveling to Europe or anywhere abroad or really, for that matter, anywhere in the United States, this is a tip that I have been using for almost 20 years that I think you're going to find really helpful. Now, everybody knows you need to bring money with you when you travel. And now that might not be as true as it was a long time ago when it was important to bring a lot of cash with you when you travel. You can pay for so many things with credit cards and debit cards these days, but even still, it's important to have payment methods at your fingertips when you travel. So you never miss an opportunity to get that souvenir or that meal or some other travel experience that's going to be really meaningful to you. But what happens if something goes wrong on the trip and you misplace your wallet? Or uh, maybe you misplace your purse, uh, your carry-on luggage, or maybe you have an unfortunate encounter uh, with a pickpocket or uh, something else like that goes wrong and you get separated from your money, separated from your credit cards. That is no fun. That's a disconcerting feeling. Uh, And if you are alone, especially in a foreign country, uh, that can be a really unpleasant experience to go through. So what do I do? Well, 
I make sure that I keep a payment method in a place that will not get lost. In other words, I separate my money when I travel. Now, uh, in the days when I was carrying a lot of cash, that meant I carried a little bit of cash in my pocket. I carried a little bit of cash in my wallet that was uh, stuffed in a safe part of a carry-on bag, and I might have kept a couple things in a couple other places too. These days, since I do most of my transactions via a card, a credit card, I make sure to have more than one card with me, and I don't keep them all in the same place. So when I'm out and about on the road, I will have my primary credit card in my front pocket. I actually don't even take a wallet with me when I'm out and about on the road because I really just need that credit card, maybe a room key, perhaps an ID, and that's about it. So I'll take that in my pocket, also keep some cash in there, but I'm going to keep my other cards in a safe place in the hotel room, maybe with some extra cash or when I'm in the airport, when I'm in transit, those cards and cash are in a safe place in my carry on that never leaves my site. So if I lose that carry on, I still have a credit card in my pocket. And if something goes wrong and my pocket gets picked, well, I still have a credit card in my carry on or back at the hotel room. This will save you a lot of hassle. Now, if you lose a credit card along the way, you still will, of course, need to call and have that card canceled. But you don't have to worry that you are stranded in a place you're unfamiliar with without any way to pay for your life because you can keep on traveling, keep on operating, keep on buying things with that card that you stashed away somewhere. There is your road tip for the day. Up next, I want to share just a little bit of news from us. Now, you may be aware of our on-site familiarization program, which takes people just like you who plan group travel to some fantastic destinations all over the United States and even in some foreign countries that want to show off what they have to offer so that you will bring your groups back. Now, we have been on some fantastic FAMs throughout 2022. It's been wonderful. We are in the process of finalizing our 2023 FAM schedule. Now, I can't tell you where we're going, but I can tell you this. It's going to be places that you will love. You have my word on that. We are putting together some amazing trips with amazing partners. I wish I could tell you. I know where they are. I just can't tell you. But soon we will be able to tell you, and I don't want you to miss the opportunity to get involved on these trips. I don't want you to miss when we announce where we're going, when the dates are. I want you to be able to put it on your calendar as soon as you can. I want you to be able to fill out the application form. I want to make the best opportunity possible for you to enjoy these fantastic experiences that we are putting together for you. So how do we make sure that happens? Well, I want you to go over to grouptravelleader.com slash subscribe. And if you haven't already, sign up for our e-newsletters or our magazines. And when you do, you will be one of the first people to know when those fam tours are all set. And when the announcements go out, you will get them instantly and you will be able to sign up. And of course, as always, your subscription there, whether in print or digital is completely free grouptravelleader.com slash subscribe. I'll put that for you in the show notes as well. And I hope to see you on the road in one of the many fantastic destinations that we'll be visiting together in 2023. Well, now it is almost time to get into our featured conversation with Christopher Elliott. Before we do though, let me encourage you to hang around to the end of the conversation because after we're done with the interview and the recap, 
I want to share some thoughts about something that happens every year during travel trade show season, which has just started. I want to talk about travel trade show events, specifically gala events, and whether or not they have any place in the tourism industry today. You won't want to miss that. We will be right back with Christopher Elliott. All right, everybody, my guest today is an author, consumer advocate, and journalist with a deep expertise in solving travel problems. He's the author of the book, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler and Save Time, Money, and Hassle. And his weekly columns, such as The Navigator and Travel Troubleshooter, reach more than 10 million readers. He's also the founder of Elliott Advocacy, a nonprofit organization that empowers people to solve their problems and help those who can't. Christopher Elliott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. How are you? I'm great, man. It's so good to talk to you. I have been uh, reading your columns like the Travel Troubleshooter for years and years. Uh, I love your work and I would love to know how someone like you finds themselves as a full-time consumer advocate because I, I can't imagine that that's a listing you saw in the newspaper and sent in a resume, right? No, it is not. It's not something where you even go to journalism school and go, hey, I want to be a consumer advocate. Uh, no, they, <laughs> they train us to do things like, you know, be magazine writers and serious journalists who write for the New York Times. And uh, no, this was something that just kind of found me by accident. Um, I was writing for a travel trade publication called Travel Weekly back in the early mm -hmm. 90s. And I noticed that there were a lot of consumers who were reaching out to me. Uh, I don't know how they found me, but they, you know, they were having issues with uh, even flights and hotels. And uh, somehow they thought I would be able to help them. And there was no one out there who, who I mean, there, I think it, back then, Condé Nast Traveler had an ombudsman. That was it. And so I started answering them. And it grew from there. Um, you know, I started doing an online column for abcnews.com and then uh, eventually got hired by National Geographic Traveler to do their ombudsman column. And, um, uh, you know, it just kind of it grew on me. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Travel Weekly, uh, they are, are friends of the podcast, friends of our organization. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that uh, we have that background in common. So uh, people found you because people had problems and there didn't seem to be anywhere else to go. So take us back to that landscape in the nineties. Uh, travel is maybe starting to develop a bit of a reputation for being unfriendly to consumers. I, I, am I remembering that right? Definitely. This was, uh, these were the, the early years of commoditization. Uh, that term basically means that uh, every airline seat is the same. Uh, every hotel room is the same. And uh, the travel industry used to compete on service. And, and then there was a shift in the 90s. The deregulation happened in the late 70s. It started to pick up steam. I'm talking about airline deregulation. started to pick up steam in the 80s. And then in the 90s, it really started to take hold. People started to shop basically on price instead of on service. Mm -hmm. And um, it really was a terrible thing because um, I think people still expected good service from the travel industry. It is called the hospitality industry. And so they were actually trying to sell themselves based on the service they were providing. At the same time, they were making cuts. So people felt very mm -hmm. deceived and there was no one to help them at all. Consumer laws, there were very few consumer laws. 
airlines were regulated and are still regulated at the federal level, but the DOT would not get involved in consumer complaints, um, especially when it came to customer service. And then hotels and rental cars were all regulated and still are regulated at the state level. And they don't have the resources really to do anything in terms of customer service. So there's no, no place to go. So they started turning to, to the journalists and asking them for help. And I guess that yeah. they, that's how they found me, uh, found me. So it strikes me that there are lots of commodity markets in the country, uh, you know, outside of travel and products that we can expect to be commoditized. You know, I think of like life insurance, for example, you know, you, life insurance from one provider is basically the same as another provider, but we still have a, an expectation of a high level of service from our insurance agents. So why was the travel industry able to get away with some uh, less than friendly consumer practices with commoditized products that other industries don't? I think that when you look at the airline industry, and I know I'm going to upset my friends in the airline industry when I say this, but um, one of their business models is deception and confusion. Mm. They love to deceive consumers with their prices and mm. say, oh, look, this this flight is only going to cost you $49, but then they add this, the taxes and fees and they said, they tell you, they don't tell you that you're going to have to buy a seat reservation uh, or that you'll have to pay an excessive change fee or something like that. But there's that. And then there's also the, uh, the deception or kind of the explanation. Well, you couldn't possibly understand uh, a plane is a very complicated thing to fly. You would never understand the business so let's, we'll just tell you how it is. And, and I think there's a lot of that going on where the airline industry and a lot of its apologists were able to make a case that the airline industry somehow was special. And then as the airline industry led down this road, other, other aspects of the other parts of the travel industry followed as well. Hotels, rental cars, vacation rentals. They all said, oh, well, you know, if the airline industry is doing all this, uh, interesting stuff with yield management and deceptive fares and prices. Maybe we can too. And so th it, it was just uh, customer service just circling the drain and then more people jumped in and then it kept circling the drain and it got worse and worse. Yeah. And, and then we get to say the mid 2000s into this period of uh, what you could call like the great unbundling right? Where all these amenities and services that used to be part of a base fare or your room night or whatever, all of a sudden turned into extras. So how did that impact uh, the customer experience and the complaints that you were getting from customers? Well, you have to look at the, the backdrop against which all of this is taking place. You have uh, first 9-11 mm -hmm. and then in 2001, then you have uh, the Great Recession, 2008 and 9, mm -hmm. and then you have covid and those are all milestones in the crazed effort to unbundle everything. Mm. Every time uh, something happened where the economy was not doing well, uh, or whenever fuel, airline fuel prices would go up, whatever the excuse was that they wanted to use, they would start doing some very aggressive unbundling. And I would say it's kind of anti-competitive because although they didn't really all get into one room and say, let's unbundle everything and then we can charge our customers more. There was an understanding that once one did it, American airlines started charging for the first check bag. I think that was in 2009. They all eventually did. They all were just salivating over the extra ancillary revenue that they could be getting. 
And it just didn't stop there. Ever, anything that was not bolted down was, <laughs> could be turned into revenue, could be monetized, and they did. Yeah. To play devil's advocate, though, weren't the airlines coming out of uh, a few decades where there was just bankruptcy after bankruptcy? I mean, they were really struggling to make profit. And essentially, those baggage fees made them profitable, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if you take like a big picture view of it, it the baggage fees helped, but it was really the loyalty programs that made them profitable. Right now, there, um, I would say that there are no airlines anymore in, in the world. There are just loyalty programs that happen to be operating planes. Um, <laughs> in addition to credit cards and, you know, hotel partnerships and all those other things. Right, right. That's all part of the loyalty program. But no, um, I would say that the, the reason that the airlines were doing so bad was not because of the economy. We had some economic issues, but it was bad management. Mm. The, the airlines could have done things differently. And instead they just ran their businesses in an exceptionally incompetent way. And then they blamed everyone else for it. So I'm, yeah. so, I'm sorry to push back at your devil's advocacy, but no, I'm the, I'm the travel industry super villain. So I'll, I'll take the heat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to hear that perspective for sure. So give us an idea. I know you probably get more customer requests than you can field, uh, certainly now, but give us an idea. Um, and let's talk pre-COVID because I know so many things are different, but what, what are the, some of the most common uh, traveler advocacy requests that you see from consumers who need help with something that they just can't get traction on by themselves? It's so hard to think about pre-COVID because it's already been three years almost yeah, since COVID, right. but um, you know, you, I get a lot of airline complaints, obviously. Um, I, I, many of my columns run in newspapers in the Sunday travel section. And, uh, and so people want to complain about airlines because the service is exceptionally bad still. It got much worse during COVID um, because, you know, you, you had airlines that basically stopped flying and then forced people to take these expiring ticket credits. Mm. So I got a ton of complaints about that. But it's, it's little things that where the DOT can't do anything about it. And so, mm. uh, and the airline doesn't care. And so uh, it gets, it just falls between the cracks. And the airline's attitude is, and I'm not going to say they're all this way, but many of them are, is like, well, who else are you going to fly? You know, if you want to go from point right. A to point B, you, you've got us and then you've got, you know, the other big legacy carrier maybe, and that's it. And um, yeah. And in some markets, it's just one airline. So you have no choice. Have you seen uh, since COVID kind of changed everything? Uh, have, have you seen people uh, change what they're complaining about? Or is it still kind of the same thing? No, COVID really did change a lot of things. You know, early on, we had a lot of businesses, cruise lines, tour operators, and even airlines that were forcing people to accept these vouchers. And so we had mm -hmm. a period of maybe 24 months where really every complaint that we got was about these vouchers. And I didn't want to take the voucher. They forced me to. And in a lot of cases, that was illegal. Um, mm. It forced a lot of people, though, to look at the contracts that they were agreeing to. These adhesion contracts that you, you have to agree to if you take a cruise or if you take a tour, they're filled with all kinds of fine print that people, normal people would never agree to. So if they read it, they would go, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to agree to this. Um, I love cruise contracts, you know, just for the comedy value. 
where they say things like, we can miss every port and we're not going to refund your money. And you're going, mm. but I'm going on a cruise so that I can visit these ports. And they go, no, no, we, we can cancel the ports if we want to. It's fine. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Some of the things that, that they put into airline contracts are crazy too. I mean, the fact that you have to use the ticket as ticketed and you can't, like, you can't get off the plane and say, no, I'm just going to go halfway. And that they can come after you and confiscate all your miles if you don't use the entire ticket as, as ticketed. And then they, then they say that that's illegal, even though it's, there's no law that says that you can't do that. But they say it's an illegal ticket. Right. It's ridiculous. My hat's off, honestly, to some of the people in the, uh, in the uh, travel industry who do revenue management and come up with some of these fees. They are brilliant. But we're not stupid. That's where I have to come in and say, hey, look at these contracts. This is absurd. You, know, you should never agree to it. You should never do business with a company that forces you to uh, agree to a contract like this. Can you explain the term adhesion contract for people that aren't familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, of course. An adhesion contract is, you know, every, every travel business has some, something like a terms, terms and agreement or, um, uh, you know, a ticket contract or something like that. And, and basically when you do business with the company, when you're uh, buying a ticket or you're booking a room, you are agreeing to its terms and conditions. And that's a contract. And so you don't even have to read the contract to agree to it. But an adhesion contract means that it applies to uh, you, but not necessarily to the company. And you have no choice at all in agreeing to it. It's if you buy, if you're, if you're doing business with the company, you're agreeing to the contract, essentially. Wow. Yeah, I can see how that would be tricky. So a lot of our listeners are people who have small tour companies, uh, some mid-sized tour companies. They're not the some of the retail giants necessarily uh, that you know and maybe get uh, complaints about. But I have talked to a lot of them over the past couple of years and they said, Brian, our our vendors were keeping our deposits. You know, obviously yeah. we couldn't visit during COVID, but the, you know, the, the restaurant that we reserved, you know, 40 seats in for dinner one night, they just kept the money. Yeah. And so I'm interested to know uh, how you would advise uh, someone who's running a small business. Maybe it's a, a, a solopreneur or a mom and pop tour company. How do you navigate a situation where uh, a vendor is just being patently unfair and yet you have customers that you care about that have put money on deposit with you? I mean, how do you how do you navigate that squeeze in a way that is ethical uh, and doesn't put you out of business? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I feel very bad. And I've, I think I've written a couple of things about that, too, where it's the, the little guys that are really taking the brunt of the horrible things that are happening during covid and they're taking a lot of the anger from customers who are misdirecting it at the little guys. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of businesses accepted money from customers uh, just before COVID and then decided to keep it because they needed that money to run their business. So they used it for overhead. Yeah. And uh, that was an understandable thing to do. But when your customers ask for a refund, you should give them the refund. It doesn't matter what your contract says. Your contract might say that you don't get any refunds, but um, COVID was kind of a game changer and nothing was running during COVID. And so I think you really had an, uh, uh, an ethical obligation to refund every penny. The real issue though, is as you say, what if your vendors are keeping that money, if you've passed it along to your vendors already, and you do have tools that can um, get the money back. I just did a big piece on uh, regulation E, which is a very little known regulation 
um, that uh, is part of a 1978 law that allows you to get money back that you've wired to someone. And most people think that when you wire money that it's gone, it, it, it doesn't come back, but banks are actually required to, uh, to open an investigation when money has been wired to another business and to, uh, and to get it back if possible. I also think that you can bring to bear some pressure on the, the restaurant or the venue or wherever the hotel and say, look, this, um, this pandemic is not going to last forever. And when we come out of it, I'm going to be looking for partners who I trust and that I want to do business with. I may not want to do business with you if you're going to keep my money. And, um, so that, that also might, might work. Oh, that's, that's a good idea. Uh, let me ask you for another uh, scenario for you to give some input on. Let's say we have a, a you know, mom and pop tour company that is uh, operating a tour that departs, you know, three days from now and someone on the tour has paid, they've paid in full uh, and then uh, they get sick. Maybe it's COVID, hmm. maybe it's something else, you know, infectious or chronic, whatever. They get sick and they call the tour company uh, and they want their money back, but they haven't purchased travel insurance. They haven't done any of the best practices. What should that tour company owner do? Because, you know, they are probably out those expenses. They, they've already prepaid those meals. They can't get out of the hotel contract. So you want to offer good service, but your hands are tied to a certain extent. So how would you advise that person? Yeah, I think that especially now when you have uptake rates in the 30% range, uh, you need to have a heart to heart conversation with every client about travel insurance. Mm -hmm. And I know of some tour operators that absolutely will not sell you a tour unless you've, they, you've had a conversation with them about travel insurance, you've declined it, and you've signed a form saying that you declined travel insurance, you've initialed it, uh, and you've signed in blood, and it has to be your own blood. <laughs> so, um, yes, that, that is something that I, I'm kidding, by the way, uh, yeah. you can use one of your kids. I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously, you got to talk to your clients about travel insurance. Uh, you, you have to, uh, if someone is canceling three days before and demanding a full refund, they're not going to get very far with me mm. because the first question I'm going to ask them is, did you have travel insurance? Now there is insurance and there's insurance. I mean, if they're not going to be covered by their insurance and they got insurance, there might be a case to be made. Um, cancel for any reason. The problem with cancel for any reason is that they don't, you don't get all your money back. It's like 50%, 75%. I have a little bit of a problem with that. But still, um, if they've turned down insurance, then they are pretty much on their own. So we, we talked about how, you know, declining insurance is a major mistake if you've really invested in a trip. Are there other mistakes that you see consumers commonly making because they've just never been taught or, you know, they're trying to, to get by inexpensively? Are there common mistakes that we should avoid when we're booking travel to help us stay away from a situation where, you know, we're pulling out our hair on hold with customer service? Yeah. I mean, for a lot of the people who your podcast is going out to, I think travel agents are really important travel advisors mm -hmm. um, because travel advisors will have a relationship with a tour operator and they'll, they'll know which mistakes to avoid. For example, mm -hmm. uh, maybe arriving a day early so that you don't miss the tour. That's a big one for tours and for cruises. 
maybe doing an extension at the end or giving yourself a day afterwards to tour on your own somewhere. You know, they, there are mistakes that are made with transportation uh, airlines, for example, connections that are too tight, going through the wrong city, checking the wrong mm-hmm. type, type of luggage or checking luggage at all. Um, those are things where a travel advisor, a really good travel advisor can make sure that you're not doing any of those things. And uh, the problem really is finding a good travel advisor. And now it's gotten really confusing because you have travel advisors, travel agents, and now you have travel coaches and figuring out which one you need is almost impossible. Like who, what is a travel coach anyway, right? It's not a travel agent, someone who helps you book travel, but doesn't actually book the travel for you. It's getting very confusing. That, that is very confusing. Is it fair to say that with the right travel advisor, uh, that person, because they have some relationships with the vendors, uh, they may have more success in getting you that refund process or, or that exception to a rule, you know, if you have trouble? Well, that's what you're really buying when you work with a travel advisor is you're buying their connections. So mm. you know that if you have to file out, if you have to fill out rather a um, travel insurance claim that they're going to be with you, they're going to hold your hand and make sure that it gets taken care of. And that if there needs to be an appeal, that they'll take care of that for you. If you have a problem with an airline, that they have the phone number for luggage claim and they can call it for you. And mm-hmm. uh, if you need to get a refund on a ticket, that they'll make sure that they, and if, and if you don't get a refund, that they will call someone at the airline or at the car rental agency and make sure that that gets taken care of. So you're not really paying for the services, the, you know, the keystrokes person making a reservation, you're paying for all their relationships. And that's what makes finding a good travel advisor really difficult is how do you tell, how can you tell that if that person has the experience and knows those people, you really have to, I don't know, it's references, it's word of mouth advertising. If you know someone who knows someone, um, the really good travel agents already have enough clients. And so, you may have to actually petition them to accept one more. So we have been living through this incredible summer of discontent in travel. Uh, you know, labor shortages have pushed uh, the travel infrastructure to, to nearly its breaking point, certainly in the airline space, but, but other spaces as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you telling people right now uh, that they should expect? What is a reasonable expectation for customer service in this environment where everybody is chronically understaffed? I mean, can do 2019 paradigms of customer service apply or do we all need to kind of just readjust and um, come about this differently? No, I mean, I think every year is a little different. You know, 2020 is very different from 2019, obviously. And uh, 22 is going to be different from 23. Uh, I think though that some things are always going to be the same. Uh, Summers are always difficult for air travel. Fortunately, most people don't fly. Um, you know, 90% of all trips take place by car. Mm. Uh, and for, for drivers, it's actually been a pretty good year. You know, gas prices are down almost by a dollar. And, you know, uh, people are getting to where they need to go. And so it's, it's absolutely fine. But if you're flying, you know, even under the best of circumstances, flying this time of year can be very, very difficult. Luggage gets lost. Flights get canceled. You have thunderstorms. Now you've got other things going on with the, uh, the labor shortfall and, and some of the scheduling issues that the airlines have had. 
I, I think that, you know, my advice to consumers, if they ask me is if you can postpone a flight until shoulder season. So until mid September, uh, take your flight then because, you know, you'll have, uh, there'll be fewer people out there. You'll have a much saner experience, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and avoid the, the really busy times of the year. I mean, Thanksgiving is going to be crazy again and Christmas and new year's it's going to be nuts out there. And I don't think that the airlines are going to have the situation resolved with, uh, with their labor problems. So we're going to have a repeat and may even be worse than this summer. Well, (laughs) I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too. You could very well be right. So I know on uh, your website and in many of your articles, you like to give readers some tools that they can use to advocate for themselves. Uh, whether it's, you know, in the airport when something goes wrong or after the fact, when they feel like they need to register a complaint or ask for a refund or or some of those things. So can you give us a a couple of high level bullet points about, um, behaviors, habits, approaches that are most likely to lead to success when you need to solve a travel problem? Yeah, Brian, I'm really glad you mentioned that because the site that I do, Elliot Advocacy is all about giving people the tools that they need to advocate for themselves. Because I really think that you are your own best advocate. Uh, You don't need me. You need yourself. You need uh, maybe a couple of executive phone numbers and email addresses. And then you need some how-to information. And then you go get them by yourself. Um, Mm. My dream is to have everyone, an army of advocates unleashed on uh, corporate America so that they, they end up all doing the right thing. Um, mm. Maybe the military analogy is not the best one, but I, I do want people to advocate for themselves. I don't imagine it being a big battle or anything like that. But yeah. uh, to answer your question, though, this is the summer, I think, when, and, and it wasn't, it's not even the summer, I think it's just the year when people lost their manners. Mm. And so that's the one thing that will really will set you apart from all the other travelers. When everyone else is yelling at the, gate agent, uh, the person at the front desk of the hotel, and you're the calm one that Mm. sets you apart. And it sets Mm. you apart for a much better travel experience. When you smile and you use your pleases and your thank yous, Mm -hmm. you're much more likely to get an upgrade, uh, a better room, a better car, maybe even a better airline seat. The other thing is to maybe just be a little bit aware of some of the issues that the travel industry is going through. It's the same issues everyone else is going through. When you go to a restaurant, you see that they don't have servers. When you go to another business, maybe they don't have enough sales associates there. It's even worse in the travel industry right now. Um, I visited a hotel a couple of months ago. And I, I, when I go to a hotel, I love talking to the general manager and just finding out what's going on. So I said, is the GM there? And, and uh, the woman at the front desk said, yeah, let me go get him. And he came out and he was wearing those, uh, those blue gloves, he was actually turning a room. He and the assistant general manager were doing rooms and I couldn't Mm -hmm. believe it. But that's what, that's what it's come to right now is that the GM has to go and clean rooms. So if people understood that they might be a little bit more patient and understanding when things go wrong. Yeah. uh, That's such good advice. So you have your website, Elliot Advocacy. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes. Is there any other place that you recommend people go to follow you or, or find your resources? Uh, yeah, I'm on the usual places, Twitter, Facebook. I also have an email newsletter that I think people would really enjoy. It's called Elliot Confidential. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T. So two L's and two T's, confidential.com. 
Well, before we let you go, we have a series of questions we ask everybody, and these are just for fun. So no pressure. You can shoot from the hip. Uh, question number one, uh, is it a window seat for you or an aisle seat for you? Window. Yeah. Why is that? I just like looking at the scenery. I remember this flight that I took from Frankfurt to Doha. We were flying over Iraq. So we saw the fires mm. in Mosul uh, at night wow. over a full moon. It was the most spectacular thing that I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah, that, that's unforgettable. Okay, next question. Uh, what is one thing in your carry-on that you would never travel without? Oh, wow. That's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a bunch of things you wouldn't leave home without. I do, yeah, well, I do. I carry a lot of things with me. I'm just going to go with a safe answer and say uh, a change of clothes. I, if I didn't have mm. a change of clothes, I would be really, really, it would not be a good trip. Uh, and, and related to that, Doing laundry on the road is close to impossible. Mm. Your hotel loves to charge you for dry cleaning and you, you could spend as much money doing dry cleaning as you do on your room rate. And I've also tried to do laundry in the sink and it never turns out. It, either it doesn't dry and you end up going to a meeting the next day with soggy clothes or mm. it starts to mildew and you smell like a homeless person. Well, if, listen, if you solve that problem, let us know and we will, we will share the solution uh, far and wide. Okay. So, so next question, uh, if you had a free airline pass and a week with nothing else to do, where would you be headed next? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I have multiple answers for that. Um, I haven't been back home to Sedona in a year, so I would go home and I would probably take a nice hike in, um, in the Red Rocks and go mm. uh, eat at my very favorite pizza place. It's called Pisa Lisa. And I would mm. drink some kombucha with my, my sons. And the other place that I would love to go back to is, is Hawaii. Um, mm. I love the big Island, um, but I haven't been to Kauai in a while. So maybe I would just go to Kauai and hike around there. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, that dovetails really well with our last question, which is what is one thing that you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience with somebody you love? You know, I love to ski. I would love to take my, my sons back to Austria. I grew up in Austria. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, I, I was there for 16, 17 years and every winter we would go skiing in the Alps and it is just unspeakably beautiful. And mm -hmm. I would love to take them to one of the big resorts, uh, maybe in the spring. Spring is a really good time to go skiing and, and just uh, spend the day skiing around, um, you know, nice bluebird day with a little bit of fresh powder. Uh, that would just be perfect. Oh, and those memories would last a lifetime, I'm sure. Christopher Elliott, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Christopher Elliott. I know I certainly did. And as a longtime fan, I found him just as helpful and delightful in person as he always has been in print. Now, I want to go back and hit a few of the things that he talked about, because I think they're really important for us to know, even if you're booking travel for groups and perhaps bypassing a lot of the struggles that people have when they book travel for themselves on their own. I think number one, it's helpful to just know what the pain points are that many consumers have so that we can make sure we are addressing them well 
in the travel industry. But uh, Chris also had some things that were pretty helpful to hear for people who are working in the group travel business. So I want to just hit some of those one more time to make sure we don't miss them. You know, one of the things he said is that when your customers ask for a refund, you should give them the refund. Now, that sounds so simple, but for many people, that's a struggle. And I understand why, because you've got that money in hand and you want to keep it. But here's the thing. Even if that's not what your contract says, the best long-term play for good customer relationships is to issue the refund, especially in an emergency situation, in a pandemic situation, in a disaster situation, you will build a much better reputation and much better long-term impact with your customers if you are not stingy with refunds. And yeah, you might say, well, but the contract says, and here's the letter of the law. But you know what? When people are in a difficult situation, when they're in an emergency situation, in an emotional situation, they're not going to remember the letter of the contract they signed. They're not going to remember what the legal term said, what they are going to remember is how you made them feel. And you are going to make a lot more progress by being generous with refunds than by being stingy. Another thing Christopher said was that if you have already paid deposits on a tour to vendors, you have tools that can help you get that money back in case something goes wrong and the vendor is not able to render the service. You know, I heard way too many horror stories uh, in the pandemic and the immediate aftermath of the pandemic about tour companies that lost money to vendors who kept deposits and uh, obviously weren't able to render services. And that was an expense that a lot of tour companies just ended up eating in the midst of a time when they had no revenue. Man, what a tragedy that is and how good it is to know that there are tools at your disposal uh, to get those funds back if you find yourself in a situation like that. Now, Christopher said, uh, regarding travel insurance, you need to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with every client about travel insurance before a trip. Now, of course, you can't force people to buy travel insurance, but you can help them understand how expensive and costly it can be to reschedule a part of a trip or to cancel a trip or to lose money they've paid toward a trip if something in life goes wrong. And in the travel business, I feel like we should be all about making people's dreams come true. And part of that means protecting them from nightmares. And travel insurance is a super important way to do that. Great reminders there from Christopher Elliott. Now, we are in late November and right in the middle of the tourism trade show season, which tends to last from, I don't know, beginning of November through about March or April. If you're a travel professional, chances are you're going to at least one major travel trade show during that time. But people from our company will attend three or four or five. I can't even keep track with how many events we are at during this season. And uh, there are parts of trade shows that are fantastic. There are parts that are super helpful. There are places where business definitely gets done. But there are also some parts that, well, maybe have outlived their usefulness. That is the topic of today's Hot Minute. Yeah, that's right. The Hot Minute is the portion of every show where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue impacting tourism every day. And today I want to talk about 
the gala dinner event that has been a staple of so many tourism trade shows for so long. I have some thoughts on that. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. All right, the fancy gala on the closing night of a big tourism trade show has been going on for decades and decades. And while maybe it made sense a while ago, I don't think it makes any sense anymore. You know, everyone enjoys a fun evening event at a tourism conference, but the gala dinner is a tradition that needs to die. Truth is, there are probably only a few dozen people, if that many, at each tourism conference who actually enjoy getting dressed up for stuffy parties like gala dinners. Having formal evenings creates a real headache for planning and packing for your trip. And here's the truth. Younger people rarely get dressed up for anything but maybe weddings these days. And if our industry wants to attract some new young talent, which we desperately need, we got to get out of the habit of doing things that make them feel stuffy and uncomfortable and get back to having fun, which is what we do best. And as far as I'm concerned, a suit and tie should never be required for fun. That's the way I see it anyway. You are welcome to disagree with me. And of course, we will still be friends. Agree? Disagree? Either way, we would love to hear from you. You can let us know your thoughts, questions, opinions, comments by emailing podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address and I would love to hear from you. And you never know. Your question or comment might just be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback and let us know what you think, would you do me a favor? Go over to your podcast player of choice. And if you haven't already subscribed to Gather and Go, hit that subscribe button. Leave us a rating. Give us a review. Let us know what you think and how we can serve you better. You would have my thanks for it. My thanks as well to Christopher Elliott. On the next episode of Gather and Go, I'm going to bring you a wonderful conversation with Tanya Matthews of the International African American Museum, who is going to share all about how she uses travel to help teach people and lead them to discovery, even in the midst of difficult topics. Until then, though, remember this. At the end of the day, we're all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of The Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com.